I've really tried to do things that I thought were interesting with people that I really enjoyed working with and I thought I could learn from. So I wouldn't tell you that my career is this incredibly well thought, well executed path, but people open doors and I tend to walk through them. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. When Megan Callahan was growing up, she was supposed to end up in healthcare and didn't even know there were alternatives. So she spent her career in life in and around the field as both an executive and a breast cancer patient. What she didn't foresee was that she'd be putting her healthcare skills and experiences to work at a ride-sharing company, driving their navigation of the healthcare highway. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shavitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's health system. Oh, goodness. <laughs> getting weirder and weirder on that one, David. <laughs> yes, David. There we go. That's, that's, we're just, just waiting for that. Um, so uh, what I want to ask you about is, um, you know, with uh, our guest today at Lyft, and we're sort of hearing there's so many tech companies mm-hmm. who are perpetually hearing about going to transform, disrupt, reinvent healthcare. Well, what's your status? What's your progress report on that? Where do you think we are on this? Uh have we seen examples of tangible impact other than that I can get an EKG on my watch? <laughs> <laughs> Am I making your heart go faster, David? <laughs> um, you know, I actually am sort of surprised by how encouraged I am by some of the tech companies I've seen. And I think part of the reason is they've really made the point to hire really good healthcare people this time around. I think the first attempt of a lot of the healthcare company or a lot of the tech companies coming to healthcare was um unguided by experience, you know, and now I think there's much more emphasis on the importance of blending healthcare experience and tech experience to move the ball forward. So I'm actually seeing some pretty interesting progress. Companies like Lyft, we're going to talk about a little bit, but um, Amazon certainly, I think, is making some really interesting progress here. Comcast, who we had on our, you know, gentleman we had on our show a couple weeks ago, Submit Nogpile, I think is got some very interesting ideas of, and are doing some very interesting things with their employees, too. So I do think there's so we're moving from here. the buzz and from the sort of high-level yeah. yeah. magic view to something that's a little bit more pragmatic on the basis of people bringing in good talent. I think that's right. And not, and not just talent, but resources and maybe advanced technology that we don't often have in the healthcare side. And All right. Optimism. You heard it here first, folks. Um, with, <laughs> With, uh, yeah, and with the benefit of, a, of a <laughs> domain expertise. So that's fantastic. Well, speaking of uh, the tech world coming to healthcare, it's uh, great to have Megan here today. So thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. Great Live, great baby. <laughs> that's right. So let's jump right into the hard part here. Uh-oh. In 2014, you were a senior executive at a healthcare company, McKesson, and found out you had stage 3B breast cancer. You dropped everything to recover and spent as much time you could with your two young daughters. Given the many years of healthcare operations you had engaged in before that, were you surprised by your own healthcare experience? I was surprised by it. I mean, there's there's nothing like being in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for the majority of my time at McKesson was on the healthcare IT side of McKesson, not mm-hmm. the pharma distribution right. side of McKesson. And, but and you'd also been at HealthNet. We'd been at HealthNet. I'd worked for a health system. Right. So So... Yes. You knew how the sausage was made. I knew how the sausage was made. But I think I was um, not prepared um, 
when you're in those shoes, just how hard we make it. What was the for patients. biggest revelation? How disjointed everything was. Mm-hmm. And particularly at the time, I was on the board of Commonwealth, which mm-hmm. is an interoperability company, right? Yeah. Or a collaborative. And just how little of my data was being shared across, you know, the oncologist, the mm-hmm. surgeon, um, my primary care physician. It was just actually unbelievable well, to particularly me. Particularly ironic I mean, in light of your own experience. Well, it, it definitely in light of my own experience. I mean, I was literally, I mean, you hear these stories, but you're filling out the same clipboard, right, in 2014 mm-hmm. for every single doctor. And I, you know, I could literally throw a rock from my oncologist's office and hit my surgeon's door. And they had no interoperability between those systems at all, asking me the same questions over and over. When I went to go get a second opinion, I remember calling and needing to get my pathology. And they said, we're going to have to drive down here and get the path block. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have to drive it or ship it. And I, my mind was was blown. I just I couldn't believe this is what we were we were doing. And this is after a, you know many years of a career focused on on sort of dealing with these exact frictions, right? Yes, and I remember sitting in the waiting room and being so frustrated. It's a very emotional time anyway, right? Sure. And I remember sitting there and um, probably cussing to my husband who is who is next to me, saying, "I can't believe you know I'm still doing this." And he said, "Well." You better get better and get back at it because you clearly have a lot more, lot more work to do. Well, you originally you were going to be a doctor. That was your original. That plan. was the original plan. And it was, yes. and that you were expected to go into the healthcare field. Why, why was that? Uh, my mom was a physical therapist, so mm-hmm. I think my mom was a bit of a trailblazer. So in the late '50s, when everyone was going to be a nurse or a school teacher, she fought her parents and went to a PT school. Um, my, my brother, who's 12 years older than me, was a pharmacist. My sister, who's 10 years older than me, was a nurse. It was just kind of this, it was a lot of healthcare. It was kind of just this path. My father actually worked at uh, Kaiser Mm -hmm. for a number of years. So, um, it it was just, I don't think they did a really good job of exposing me to anything else, quite frankly. So it was just like, this is what (laughs) you're going to go do. And I do remember. You can go into healthcare or you can go into healthcare. Or or you can go into healthcare. And I remember when I did opt to go on to the business side, onto the administrative side. Remember the first Christmas. It was like. Like, oh my gosh, it was like, you have gone to the dark side. What are you doing? Um, so it was, uh, but they, they, they eventually got over it. Well, you did. You went to the, you went and got an MPH instead of an MD degree. That's what? totally the dark side. Yeah, that is totally great. the dark side. No, right? no, not MPH. It's not that dark. That's not that dark. <laughs> well, then when I went, started going more into business development, right, right, right. strategy, MBA, corporate MBA. development, <laughs> then it was like. Really yeah, no, I think MBH side. still has a sort of a patina of virtue. Does it? Oh, good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank really. You. Thank you. Very virtuous. <laughs> So you said you had your most interesting career experience early on when you were focused on epidemiology, that you were out in Pueblo, Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. I, I was doing an internship at the CDC, and uh-huh. they were they were great to me. And um, I traveled quite a bit, actually, during that summer. And we went out to Pueblo, Colorado, to uh, a Native American uh, reservation where they had been doing uranium strip mining. Um, for years. And it was really interesting. I mean, just the, the whole landscape was just completely scarred. It almost looked like, you know, a, 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 it's space or a lunar a lunar landscape in some way. And, um, you know, we were sitting there with maps that were just lit up with, you know, different types of cancers, right, varying in proximity to this uranium strip mine. And, and we were out there doing town halls with the Native American population, you know, mm-hmm. talking about what they were doing, not only in terms of site remediation, right, with the mm-hmm. actual contaminants, but then what they were going to do for the, the Native American population um, with respect to their incidence of cancer. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that was that was very, very interesting. Um, yeah. Why didn't you head down that path? 
You know, um, I had this very romantic idea of what epidemiology was going to be. It was going to be, you know, hot zone, Ebola. It was going to be super cool. And um, it was a lot of sitting behind a computer and doing a lot of statistics. Um, oh. and, I, I, and I finally realized that in order, I was coming back to being a doctor again, in order to do some of the, the more, the sexier stuff, I would have to go back and get an MD. And at that point, um, that was not going to, that was not going to happen. <laughs> So. so do you go and, like, watch these hot zone movies? Or they, like, oh, I still love movie? it. I still love it. Yeah. Lori Garrett and The Coming Plague, and I follow her on Twitter. I love her. You know, I, lo- I still love that, but, you know, only as an interest. <laughs> so in the end, you took a pretty traditional path into healthcare, Anderson Consulting, mm-hmm. and then going to HealthNet and the like. But you got to work back in around 2000 on uh, this crazy idea of interoperability that ultimately came to haunt you. Um, <laughs> how, how did that go? I mean... You know, I, obviously, the end of that story wasn't the success of interoperability. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about that, and then if you could think forward, like, do you think we'll ever actually get to that point of patient transparency and access to their data? Well, I mean, there's certainly a huge push around it mm-hmm. right now, right? I mean, with the ONC, et cetera. I think um, I'm probably a little less optimistic given, you know, the uh, how the data is currently kept and um, how those companies are incented uh, to keep that data. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that perhaps in a next generation of technology um, that will be a little bit more purpose-built um, for sharing, is, uh, that that might actually happen. To what extent, um, you know, um, do you think it's a technology problem versus oh, it's a, a social business problem. problem? I think it's a business problem. I mean, it's 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 there, and you know, you want it's, it's a choice. You, you, it's a choice. I mean, that's you, what you, I'm wondering about. Because in other words, everyone's always like, "Oh, if we had cloud, if we had this, if we had that." But it's, my strong sense is, it's not that at all. It's 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 who, in, in whose interest is it's it? It's whose to, interest is to keep the data. And if you are, you know, if you are an organization that has invested millions upon millions of dollars, right, in your in your electronic medical record, and you know, it's a knife fight right now for health mm-hmm. systems right now and trying to keep keep patients and keep a profitable business. They're operating on razor, razor thin margins. So um, you're trying to do what you can to keep your, your hospital alive mm-hmm. and, and, your, and your patients are what you need to keep coming back. And if you're sharing data, there's the chance that they're going to go. Well, the great else. irony I see is that they're, the hospital systems, the payers, everybody and their brother is sharing data, just not to patients. Just they're not to patients. To pharma, they're sharing it to other yes. the research and discovery transactions but not to patients. Not to patients either directly and, and hopefully increasingly sharing data in order to make care decisions mm-hmm. like, right between between care providers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, it's, it's a challenge. So you kind of found your way into a pod, you called it, of people who um, follow each other around to do interesting startups and, new, and address some new ideas. Early in my career, yes, I did. Um, and some of that was great and some of that not so great. Yeah. Tell us, tell us, what was great and not so great about that? Um, yeah, so this was probably this was earlier on in my career, and there was uh, an executive that um, was at HealthNet, and then I went with him to uh, a startup, and um, and a group of us did, a small group of us did, is is is, is fairly common. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, um, you know, I don't think that I was as good as doing my due diligence in terms of um, the situation that I was walking into. I was probably a little bit more trusting than sure. I am now. Um, so we went to a startup that was owned uh, by a married couple, and um, my boss was becoming was CEO, and that's just a really yeah. 
you know, it was their baby, and they did not like what was happening with their baby. So um, he ended up being out, and then I'm stuck at this startup, right? Me and, and my other couple colleagues. Um, the stepmother. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that really made me look at not only, you know, who you're working for, and uh, but what the governance structure is of the mm-hmm. organization, and, um, you know, who's on the board, and, and, and things that hopefully, you know, we all learn as we as we grow. I don't careers. know that we all learn that. I've seen a lot mm. of examples of not learning that yeah. <laughs> among companies that I've you know worked with, seen, observed. Uh, how do people learn that? I mean, maybe through experience. Well, I think through bad experiences, yeah. probably. Is there any right? other way to learn it? You get bit it? once, and you probably don't want to do it again. Yeah. Is um, there any other way for people to learn that other than the hard way? I think the hard way. I mean, I certainly think stories some... like this, Lisa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> through, through these kind service. of cautionary tales. <laughs> Don't do that. We used to have a rule that we didn't invest in family businesses, Mm. you know, at my old venture fund, uh, which was ironic since, you know, I was related to one of my partners. (laughs) Um, But... um, but it was really problematic often when yeah. that happened because, you know, and usually it was in, in another construct which there were, when there was divorce that yeah. it could tear the company apart. Yeah. No, this couple stayed married, but, um, you know, the, the wife became the CEO again, essentially. She wanted it back. What was the best thing you learned about that experience? You know, I don't know if it was the best – well – during that was a pure technology company. We were uh-huh. trying to create a healthcare vertical within a technology company. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, ironic, again. Uh, right, right. It's like everything comes foreshadowing. Back. Um, so it was really interesting trying to come into an organization that doesn't speak healthcare. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do not understand our processes. They do not understand the complexity, um, which is you know back to the future, right, mm-hmm. where I am now again. Um, but um, trying to break new ground, leveraging uh, technology in a new way for healthcare, and then trying to go out and and talk to healthcare organizations mm-hmm. around why this is a great way, even though it's not coming from a vendor that you might, you know, associate with with healthcare. Mm-hmm. I feel um, like this is so important because the the uh, the comfort and the language, and given also like incredible for enterprise sales at least the long mm-hmm. biz, the, the long sales cycle. Yeah. Without the comfort, I mean, I, there's so many startups I see going into the space, and it's just like. You know, I can sure I can I can I can save you two years of trouble. No one's ever going to sign up. You're not yeah. going to sign on with anybody because who's going to like? Are they going to give it to Microsoft or are they going to give, give it, it to, to you? Yeah, right. And yeah. Um, I mean, not 100. percent I mean, there are ex- exceptions like Viva, right? Um, yeah. You know, when they sort of got on board. But uh, so the answer is like you know, the answer is not. Don't try. You know, like from The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> you tried and you failed. The moral is never try. Um, <laughs> but, but I don't feel that way at all. But I feel like it's important. You know, for for you know, there's so much downside risk or perception of downside risk, um, and there's so much faith in long and established relationships with companies that that's valued. You know, not it's not just a sheer economics, but it's the value of the connection and a long-term relationship. It is. It is. And in that instance, right, the, the senior executive that came over had those, had the street cred, right, to go in and, and talk to payers and, and have these conversations. But as soon as he was gone and it was back to being, you know, the leadership, I mean, that was, there was no way that anybody was going to, you know, mm-hmm. I think take seriously that we were going to continue to invest in a healthcare vertical right. in that way. Um, I think they tried to convince me to stay on for a little bit and, uh, you know, the writing was, was on the wall, I think, pretty quickly. But you eventually ended up so you eventually ended up back at a large company, McKesson. Uh, yeah, I went to I went to McKesson. Being a leader in their healthcare yeah. business, reasonably um, well known in the space. Reasonably well, well known yeah. in this space. Um, yeah. Small local company, and you've not anymore, right? Yeah, I guess like, not anymore. Mostly relocated. It's to actually Texas. really 
sad for yeah. me, just nostalgic, right? I mean, I understand why they did it, but I, mean, I think that's a big loss. We're for talking about that. Sorry, just interrupted. McKesson's recently more or less decamped from insanely expensive San Francisco um, to uh, Dallas. Dallas, right? yeah, Los Salinas, yeah. right outside of yeah. Dallas. So. Was it harder or easier to be back inside a big company to achieve your objectives? You know, it was it was comforting in in a, in a lot of ways. Um, um, is that about you, or is that about it's easier? It's just different. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's easier. It's uh-huh. just it's just different. I mean, certainly the, the you know in a big company, right? I mean, the politics take on a whole different um, side. Um, certainly for me, we were in you know McKesson was a hundred eighty billion dollar company. I was in the three billion dollar segment of it. There's certain aspects of that that could be challenging because you're not in the core business. So mm-hmm. um, how does how how do you get investment? How do you get um, access to capital? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think it was just I think it was just different, but certainly for the phase of the, my life that I was in, mm-hmm. recently married, starting a family. I mean, the big company, right? Had yeah. a lot of had a lot of pluses from that from that. And I was again went to go work for an executive that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a certain amount of, of comfort in that. He knew my skills. He knew what my career objectives were. He was you know fantastic to me in in many ways. So. Well, they, you said that they were very good to you when you got breast cancer too. They were beyond great to me wow. uh, when I got breast cancer they um, so we were I'm you know we were working on a once a year we present the strategy team presented to the board and it was like this you know you worked on it for months and it was this huge deal and um, we were you know looking at what to do with the with the IT business and I was uh, leading my team and, and putting together and I remember um, you know I found I found the lump um, and I was going to these appointments at just like the worst possible times. Like everybody's working until midnight and bringing a pizza. And I'm going, I got to go to the doctor. See you later. Um, and uh, I pretty much dropped everything on my boss's desk. I mean, I ran out like a woman with my hair on fire out of that building and just said, sorry, guys, I got to go. Um, and they picked up the slack. Um, and, you know, I like to say that I overachieved in my cancer diagnosis. So I got, you know, 18 to 24 months, um, you know, five months of chemo six weeks of radiation, two surgeries, more infusions after that. So it was a, it was a long road. Mm-hmm. Um, but while I was doing that, um, my boss at the time, um, Rod O'Reilly, who is now at Change Healthcare, um, he was always saying to me, you know, when I move on, uh, you're my successor, you're my successor. And, and he was a, he still is a great mentor to me. And um, I'll never forget because I was bald sitting at my kitchen table and he called me and, he's, and it was October and he said, um, I've taken a president of a business unit role. And I just remember going, oh, my God, like, could this be the worst time? I mean, I was in no shape to come back to work at all. Um, And he, uh, Brian Tyler, who's now the CEO of McKesson, who uh, Rod reported to at the time, uh, and Pat Blake, who is the group president, um, all called me and said, we are going to wait for you to come back. You tell us when you're ready. Rod worked two jobs for several months. Um, and then I had two more rounds of chemo, and I came back to work in January, mostly because I was just completely sick of being a patient. I just was trying to get back to some semblance of normalcy. Uh, but they waited uh, that whole time. Yeah, it would be me. really hard for a startup to do that. Totally. I don't even think you could do it, right? Yeah. And obviously, I had a team there, and they were all pitching mm-hmm. in, and all kinds of people at McKesson were, were, were supporting me and coming back. So I'll always be grateful to them for that. So speaking of change healthcare. Yeah. Um, you were really one of the leaders in, in figuring out the strategy to take those IT assets out of McKesson and create effectively a startup yeah. from that. 
Um, $3 billion startup. A $3 billion yeah. startup, you know, give yeah. or take. Um, what was that like? How did that go? Uh that was an interesting. That was an interesting journey. So at that point, I was um, before I'd been doing strategy and corp dev and biz dev more for a business unit. So focused on a portfolio of products, mostly focused on payers. And um, at this point, now I was over the whole portfolio. Mm-hmm. So that included, you know, imaging and pharmacy switches and EMRs and the whole thing. And as we were looking at this, you know, McKesson as an organization had said, um, we really need to focus, we're going to go international, we're going to focus, we're going to buy retail, right? Um, they were really changing their core, their core business. And as the $3 billion um, subs- uh, segment, you know, at that point, healthcare IT was super, super hot. I mean, valuations were going through the roof. Um, we were just taking so many shots at different acquisitions. What year was this, this was between probably 2013 mm-hmm. and 2014. Okay. Um, and, you know, we needed, as with any IT portfolio, you know, you need to reinvest and, and you know, uh, rejuvenate those products and, and grow them over time. And, um, you know, McKesson had other priorities, which is completely understandable and what they needed to do for their shareholders. But being in that, uh, that portfolio of assets was, was challenging. And so we looked at, um, you know, I got permission to, to basically say, hey, guys, actually, when I took Rod's job, mm-hmm. I said, the only reason you should hire me is if something's got to change here. Like, this is not, this is not good. We can't keep going like this. Um, so we looked at every single possible option from some kind of a Hail Mary, you know, maybe they'll let us do another acquisition to mergers to just go into a PE firm. Um, we looked at, at everything. We ran about 20 different permutations. And, um, you know, the merger with what was then MDON, uh, you know, the NPB was just through the roof. I mean, it was just by far and away the most obvious thing that we could do because there was such overlap between our core assets, which in old school language is a clearinghouse. They would not want me to say that. But um, uh, there was just the industrial logic just made total sense. And they'd both invested recently in um, uh, more contemporary assets, you know, consumer transparency and, and um, other things, risk adjustment. So, um we, I went and I pitched that to my new boss. Uh, we flew to New Hampshire and pitched it to John Hammergren, and he said, yes, you can go talk to Blackstone, which we were, you, I mean, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I couldn't believe he said yes. And um, that started, you know, a long, long kind of courting relationship, right, with Blackstone, trying to figure out what that merger was going to look like. Um, and what drove the decisions about how that merger looked? Was it business that drove it? Was it money that drove it? Was it legal that drove it? How did those decisions ultimately get made? Um, you know, I, I think it was how can we put these port- – We didn't. first of all, we didn't take all of the McKesson assets and put them in. We actually sold part of it off to all scripts. But, um, you know, it was, I think, what could make a really compelling healthcare IT company that we think has a, a success, um, will have a potential for success um, for growth mm-hmm. is really what, the, what, really what we were looking at. Um, and that could be very competitive, and probably the biggest competitor to change is probably Optum, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. different scale, right? But in terms of overlap and portfolio. Um, so I think that was probably, you know, the primary. Uh, you know, it was a very complicated deal structure, um, very complicated deal structure. Uh, and when you have Blackstone and private equity involved, right, that's a whole other Did yeah, that kettle get of in fish. the way of, you know, making good decisions? Um, I don't know if it, I don't know if I got in the way of making good decisions. Um, it definitely dictated um, governance, right? Mm-hmm. McKesson was a seventy percent shareholder. Blackstone was thirty percent um, uh, because of, of 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 debt that was on the books um, for 
change, um, McKesson couldn't have operating control. Mm. Uh, so, um, which... Because they would have to consolidate... They would have the to consolidate the debt on McKesson's books, and that mm. was just, you know, not going to happen. Um, so there were definitely some major learning moments mm-hmm. um, for me. Um, I'd done, you know, acquisitions, but I'd never done a, you know, never done anything as complicated as, as that. Yeah. Obviously, there was a team of people working on sure, that, sure, but sure. Um, never done anything that complicated. So um, carving those assets out of McKesson, you know, that was a, you know, you're impacting 10,000 employees' mm-hmm. lives. Um, and... You know, Rod was always, whenever we were going through numbers previously on different things, Rod would always say, you know, Megan, I really want you to look at that number. That's not a number. That's a person. That person has got kids they're putting through college. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got a mortgage to pay. They've got, so, you know, get out of your little, you know, science data box and, you know, think about what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't involved in this part of the transaction. He was leading, you know, he's an operating leader. But um, I always remembered him saying that to me as we were trying to make these decisions. Um, That's very profound. He, well, yeah, he's he's a fantastic person um, and, a, and, a, and a great teacher. But I really thought of that a lot as we were making these decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to when I was, you know, when I was sick, rightly or wrongly, I felt a, I, I felt like, I needed to come back and land that plane in some way, shape, or form, which, of course, they would have done it without me. But I really felt a sense of responsibility. I'd been in that, you know, for a long time, I felt a lot of loyalty to the to the employees and, and the mission of the company and what we were trying to do in healthcare. And I, I really wanted it to land somewhere in a, in a good home. So That's awesome. So you said you left, you kind of learned what you could, you finished learning what you could yeah. during that experience and, and decided to leave. And... Um, were thinking back to some of your, you know, public health roots and interests, yeah. and then Lyft called you out of the blue. Uh, with they the did call me out of the blue. Yeah, I had quit, and I'd given a month's notice, and I was sitting in my car and internal appropriately, right, <laughs> right, very appropriately. Was it autonomous? Uh, it was not autonomous. Um, and uh, yeah, a recruiter from Lyft called me, and um, huh. and and I, I kind of cocked my head and raised my eyebrow and said, "What?" Did you get my number. Um, <laughs> Because I hadn't been tracking it that that closely, mm-hmm. I, I know they had made an announcement. I think at Hims the, that year with Allscripts, they had done an integration with Allscripts, mm-hmm. but I, I wasn't tracking the space that transportation that closely. Um, but getting back to personal experiences, I mean, I remember vividly when I was going to get a second opinion for when I was sick at UCSF, and going, "Holy hell, how am I going to get? You know, how am I going to get from where I live into UCSF?" once a week for 18 months um, when I've got a four-year-old, a six-year-old, a husband that works, and no local family. How am I going to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, right, where we in, in north of San Francisco, I mean, rideshare in 2014, it wasn't like, you know, everybody mm-hmm. was jumping in a lift to, you know, go to dinner. So uh, I think situations are probably it's a little different now five years later. Yeah. Um, but taking that experience and what I was doing at, change in McKesson, which was probably more on the um, cost and quality side. Um, you know, I don't know of a more, we talk about access to care a lot, right, in many different ways, uh, but yeah, there's no more real access than actually getting people to their care. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was, I was really intrigued. And in fact, um, when I was talking to them, because I, you know, I'd quit and I was going to take time off, I wasn't going to do anything. Um, and I remember saying to my husband, I don't know if I'm being very smart about this because I'm not talking to anybody else. I'm only talking to them. 
And he said, well, you, you know, you seem very interested in, you know, you seem very passionate about what, what they're doing. So, you know, let it, let it play out. So what, was the, what was the thinking on their part? I mean, is it they sort of saw this as sort of, I don't know if channel's quite the right word, but that an underappreciated market for, for ride sharing are patients who need to get to appointments? Yeah, so you know, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's well appreciated, but you know, Lyft has been in healthcare for three years. So I did not come in to start, you know, a, a healthcare business unit within Lyft. When you say Lyft and healthcare, I mean, it's sort of like if you're giving rides to patients, are you like in healthcare? I mean, does that mean like they're in theater because to give people rides to theater? Right, <laughs> right. Well, so there is this entire very niche area of healthcare around transportation. Um, that is, you know, many, many years old. So um, Medicaid has offered transportation as a benefit since the program's inception in 1966. Um, Medicare Advantage is increasingly offering transportation. So what they did is they went into the existing ecosystem, transportation ecosystem, and really looked at um, what are the problems that are that are going on. And if you can think of transportation options in healthcare range from reimbursing somebody for gas giving them a bus token to putting them in a livery car or a taxi, or or of course all the way up to ambulances. And what they were seeing um, was quite quite honestly a a lot of inefficiency because a lot of the transportation options are smaller organizations, generally local. They are operating off of oftentimes pen and paper. You're scheduling these rides four days in advance. And what they saw is with our technology, with being able to get, deliver a ride within five minutes to a patient, um, increased transparency and cost, and, oh, did the patient actually get to where I actually wanted them to go, um, and direct routes, you know, we can really offer, you know, on order 30% um, cost savings, but more importantly, and I found this fascinating, um, what the health plans who are typically paying for these rides are concerned about is customer satisfaction and member satisfaction. It's it's it can be a real problem for them when something goes wrong, and as we're watching health plans in general embrace consumerism and try and really modernize what they're doing, you know, modernizing their transportation programs was something that was really really um, of interest. So well, there's also a lot of regulatory aspects to this. I mean, that are really essential. To I think spend about. a lot of my time. That's where it really meets <laughs> the road in healthcare. I mean, yeah, it's, I spend it's a lot of my time on compliance and regulatory. Yeah. yeah. But it's sort of the up- upshot that others, because you can say, why can't a patient just call Lyft on their own? But is the idea that by, by subsidizing yeah. it and by sort of just streamlining it, whether people are used to it or not, you kind of have it kind of pre-wired? Yeah, so sorry, I should have explained. So this is not Lyft as you know it. It's not using your app to call a ride and then, I don't know, somehow getting reimbursed for it through your insurance program. We've created a business-to-business platform, which means that the sponsoring organizations, so whether that's the health system, a discharge nurse, or um, you know, a, a case manager, or someone um, at a transportation broker who works on behalf of the payer, who's working in a call center, they will call a ride for you. So my 83-year-old mother does not have to futz with trying to figure out how to download an app and call a ride. So it's um, you know either meet us here, right? We're going to come pick you up at your house at five o'clock and we're going to take you to your, to your appointment. And you don't even have to have a smartphone. And we're going to have a car that'll And we're going to have a car that can accommodate you. Um, and uh, you don't even have to have a smartphone. We can send you text messages, but it's not, it's not required. If right. you're, 
for, for instance, a senior and you only have a landline, we will send you robocalls and, and give you um, uh, instructions and uh, reminders to get your car. So so it's it's not totally the same. And then we, of course, then invoice whoever the sponsoring organization is for those for those rides. I mean, I think does part that make of the sense? problem is patient, it does. patient helpful. wouldn't call because they wouldn't get it paid for. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I was just trying to understand what yeah, the... Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, and there's good statistics. I mean, there's, you know, 3.6 million people a year don't go to, don't access care because they literally can't get there. It costs us about $150 billion in... Okay. in so, so not to be the asshole who asked this question, but to be that <laughs> asshole, um, I feel like I've read a couple of papers that have been disappointing about ride share and cost reduction where there's examples of where people had this clever idea we're going to use a ride share i don't know if it was lyft or uber whatever um to in some particular clinical context and everyone was excited everything yeah. was lining up everyone was patting themselves on the back and in the results and in the initial yeah. early pilot studies didn't deliver the returns that were anticipated yeah so there's one study that i know of which might be the one that you're referring to um where the minute that I saw that, I thought, well, I, I think it's flawed study design, personally. I mean, they offered, you know, one ride to a PCP appointment um, within a very limited geography, et cetera, et cetera. We've got a lot of case studies and a lot of data that shows exactly the opposite. So I think in my experience or in, yeah. in the, over the past seven or eight months, I've seen one study that is the one that you're referencing to, and the rest are very positive in so, terms of in terms of cost and um, uh, other metrics on missed appointments sort of and on time. Follow up on that. So, you know, I'm trying to sort of figure out where this sort of fits in because initially for in the wellness area, there was initially saying, oh, we're going to, you know, there's all these you know, efficiencies and all of this stuff that we're going to be, by making your employees healthier, mm -hmm. we're going to be better for the bottom line. But in the end, none of that was demonstrable outside of consultant bullshit. And I mean, for real, I mean, people are now recognizing that. And what was demonstrable is that it was a good recruiting tool, like HR, like yeah. you could tell the HR, but not to the CFO. Yep. So where is the data for this coming in? Is it more like you're able to sell it as a patient benefit, as a convenience, as something that's able to... Um, uh, sort of improve the patient experience and so that the payer or whoever's hiring it can compete effectively, you know, for patients? Or is it, are you able to say, oh, by doing this, you're, we can take costs out of the system by having healthier patients? Well, I don't think that the research has evolved to such a point where we've gotten to where we're showing health outcomes as a result of ride sharing in particular. So I don't think we're there yet. I would, we're working towards that and I would love to get there. Um, but I think really what we're looking at, right? what I'm really interested in is number one, serving underserved populations, right? Which really factors into seniors and, and Medicaid. Um, and I think that there is a very acute need in those populations. And I wouldn't, I don't know if, if tying it back to the wellness, right? Bubble trend is, is totally appropriate just because it's, this is very concrete. It's getting people to access care or, or, or prevent, prevent right. either preventative care or, or enabling them to maintain, um, you know, their condition. We did a pilot with, um, uh, in Georgia, it was a very small pilot, but um, they were basically trying to get people just to go to the doctor. 50% of their, of, their, of their members weren't even accessing their network. So just by getting people to, 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 to uh, annual physicals, 10% of the, of the people who took them up on the offer for, for rides 
we found undiagnosed diabetes and COPD. They got those people into case management. I mean, I, I realize it's a very you know small number, and it was a small pilot, but you know those are those are real people and real um, you know uh, outcomes that that we're able to. Well, I also think that, that providers lose untold billions in missed appointments. Well, from a provider side, right? Absolutely, it's yeah. missed revenue. From a health plan side. It's um, making sure that people don't get sticker and it's cost avoidance down the line, right? So what's it like being at Lyft? What, what are, I mean, the, talk about going back to the future, right? You're back yeah. to now a non-healthcare company trying to excel in healthcare. Um, we should note she's not wearing a hoodie. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what, what's it like there? What's the culture like? What are the surprises? You know, I love the culture there. I mean, you walk into that building and it is humming. I mean... Everyone there, you know, um, our mission is to improve people's lives with the world's best transportation. And every single person that walked through that door, I mean, believes that. I mean, hook, line, and sinker. And Did is you doing, join pre-IPO? Uh, a, a little bit. Uh, I joined in November. So you can't really see the difference? Because no. You can't, okay. No, you know, and I think the founders of Lyft have really been very, um, very vocal with the employee base that, you know, that's a moment in time. And our mission's our mission, and our work is our work. And, you know, it was a great moment to celebrate, and we're going to keep doing what we're doing and, and moving forward. So even for the people that have been there for a long time, I don't, I, don't, I don't see a big difference. But it's very diverse, which I love. They've done an absolute amazing job. Uh, diverse because there's people who are both 25 and 30 years old? Uh, well, yeah, totally. <laughs> Well, I joke that I'm the oldest person that works at Lyft. That's not totally true, but I'm definitely on the older side. Um, but it's it's tremendously diverse, and I think that it's um, you know it's a it's a happy place to work. I don't even know how else to describe That's it. Awesome. But, That's awesome. That people and, and and what's interesting, I think, it's a really on premise culture. They invest a lot in their offices. They invest a lot in creating you know um, events and um, a cohesive culture. And they want you in the office, mm-hmm. which I found which I found really interesting for a relatively new company. So do your kids have to go into healthcare, or are they going to go into autonomous cars? Uh, you know, <laughs> they can go to the moon if they want to, whatever they want. Um, I think I was telling you, I, Lyft does a really wonderful job with Take Your Kids to Work Day. And um, it was just, I mean, they do an all-day event. They put a ton of time and effort into it. And my girls are 9 and 11, and I brought them in. And uh, they got to talk to some, you know, I'm sure some amazing, like, engineer, product manager who – so lovingly was ta- trying to explain to a 9 and 11 year old around what product management was using and AI was using like pizza and ice cream examples. It was absolutely fantastic. And then I set up interviews with them with marketing and legal and sales just so that they can get a flavor of, and they had little questionnaires, you know, that they asked them on well, where'd you go to college and what do you do and why do you do it? And anyway, so hopefully they'll, they'll be a little bit more, you know, worldly than I was when I, uh, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's really great to have you here. Thank you very much. Today's guest, Megan Callahan, head of Healthcare for Lyft, was speaking to us from Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. What what a fascinating story. But, you know, the the thing that really, um, of all things, was something that she said close to the end that I thought was kind of interesting was how she said, you know, what she likes about working at Lyft is that it's a happy place to work. Yeah. Right? I mean, or well, one, like maybe it's like still in the honeymoon phase. So there's always that. But two, I mean, I think that there is something about the energy and the positivity. Yeah. You know, for all the crap that people say about some of these tech companies, there is probably something to be said for, you know, an environment that doesn't feel soul crushing. 
You know, I've been in that office that's down by the ballpark in San Francisco, and it's really lively, and it's all hot pink and colorful, and it has all that, you know, requisite Silicon Valley BS, you know, like game tables and stuff, but it feels like people want to be there. It's really a different feeling than you get when walking into some of the other big healthcare companies where I have walked. Yes. Uh, and I do understand why she finds it compelling. I mean, I, I wrote about even, I, there's a, I remember visiting a big pharma company that's on like Cubicle Farm in Jersey. Right. I mean, and it was just, oh, I mean, and maybe it's like the whole principle of it, because, you know, they are doing serious stuff and clinical right. trials and everything, but it was like, Oh my gosh, it was like, to, to me, it felt like the epitome of soul crushing. Yeah, and I think given her real sensitivity to humans and people, yes. and she talked about that at length, I mean, I think that's probably um, a particularly compelling thing for her. And it's so know. nice to see her happy, too. Yeah, it's great. Well, you can follow David Shaywitz writing at Forbes and the occasional Wall Street Journal review. And you can follow Lisa's writing at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Thank you, and take care. Out. Out.